0: So here we are, and we'll finish up uh, this morning, Lord willing, God's uh, Communicable Attributes Part 1, which is Chapter 12 in the book Systematic Theology. Um, uh, Tentative schedule. Now, uh, today, now last week we did God's righteousness and justice, and I have one little question that came up last week I want to finish up on this morning. And then today, God's jealousy and wrath, and then... Next week it would be, normal schedule would be to start uh, chapter 13, uh, the will of God and how do we understand the will of God and his freedom and his omnipotence and how that has implications for our, our freedom to choose and uh, the strength or power that he gives us. But I'm thinking I might, just to let you know, I might instead do something that I've been waiting for some time to do. And that is a DVD, it's about uh, 23 or 24 minutes, on Christian influence on world history, on science, on government, on the history of nations, uh, with Christians who were at Cambridge University. And it's it's what Randall Macaulay talked about, but it's a DVD that puts together, so you see Sir Isaac Newton, or you see William Wilberforce, who abolished slavery in the, the United Kingdom, and um, how the influence of the gospel uh, affected them. So I might do that and kind of buffer it with a little bit of talk myself. And the reason I would do that is that the following week, then um, July 2nd, I wonder if I can do this. No. <laughs> anyway, July 2nd, um, uh, we'll have a guest teacher, and July 9th, we'll have a guest teacher, and, um, because uh, Margaret and I will be in England. And uh, we're going to, I'll tell you a little bit more about that next week. i will get a, at a conference there, and then after it's is over, we're going to meet Daryl and Holly Del Houssey, and their son John Del Houssey, and we're going to have two days in London and five days in Cambridge. And so I thought I'd maybe take you there with us by this DVD next week and kind of see the history of uh, Cambridge University and how the Christians have, more than maybe any other university, uh, have had an impact. So I might do that, and then there'll be a little leftover time, and then There's a little 14-minute video on the making of the ESV Bible, on which I was the on the translation team, and it kind of shows us working around a table and how we how we did the Bible. It's it's kind of a promotion piece to get you to buy an ESV Bible, but I mean that's why they produced it. But you can see me on the the little bit and and uh, and the other people. So I thought that might be two kind of between chapters. So that's probably what I'll do next week. It'll be a little break, and then we'll go on to Chapter 13 after that when we get back. Okay, and guest teacher, um, Bob, do we know who July 2nd will be? So so we'll have somebody, okay. And then is Eric set for July 9th? Are you here, Eric, today? And are you going to do a little bit of personal testimony as well as... A lesson, or you could. I might be good. Eric's been a member of our class. Eric was a professional basketball player in uh, Europe uh, before he came here, and was at um, New Mexico State, Uh, all-time high scorer in the history of the of the college team of the New Mexico State University team, and uh, was an active Christian there as he played basketball. So. Uh, July 9th, um, I think, if you could do a little bit of personal testimony in with the lesson, Eric, I think that would be great. Um, uh, and I just want to encourage you, when uh, um, when I'm not here, and we have a seminary student have opportunity to teach, if you could come and be supportive and be a little bit encouraging, um, you should have heard me the first time I tried to teach. <laughs> Margaret did. <laughs> And she had a few suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, teaching is like, uh, you know, playing tennis or playing golf or anything else. You get better at it over time. And uh, but um, but um, <laughs> some of these people, uh, I know John Bachelman taught for us, and John Majors has taught for us, and now we're gonna have Eric, and I think Ben Burdick uh, later in August is gonna teach. And I just think it's a wonderful opportunity for you to get to know some of these seminary students, and uh, to encourage them. And so I'm thankful for that. And I think they'll probably do better than I did the first time I tried to teach something. I don't know. Uh, So that's about it. That's where we are schedule-wise. Okay. Now, there we go. Last week we were talking about God's righteousness and justice, and that was on page 6 of your outline Page six of your outline, just below the middle of the page, application of God's righteousness. Do you you see that? That's where we were last week, and I was saying, number one, we should be thankful that God is righteous and just and fair, and this is a reason to praise him. Number two, someday he will rightly, fairly settle all accounts, and that puts our heart at peace. And also is a warning to us to be fair with others. Number three, God's justice is the invisible cause behind many events in the world where what goes around comes around and people get what they deserve. Number four, and this is where we had some question, God set up civil government to administer his justice in some events of life without waiting for providential intervention or final judgment. Um, I guess that's number three. Huh. That's number three. That's... Here, it's number. I, I redid the numbering after I sent the outline to Ben. Um, sorry, Ben. <laughs> I just keep. Okay, uh, so now the question is: How should we feel when um, when we see someone who has done wrong receive justice at the hand of civil government? And somebody was sitting right over here last week raised the question about. Uh, you know, because I mentioned about the death of Zarqawi, and that was really the, that was, I think, God's. Romans 13 says the civil government is the agent of God to execute His wrath on the wrongdoer, and I honestly think that this man who had just was so evil and had publicly beheaded people on video and was bombing innocent civilians as a pattern of life, that that was he was just the embodiment of evil. And uh, when uh, our government, through a bomb, dropped on his house, uh, brought him to justice, I think it was a case where Romans 13 says um, the civil government is the servant of God, execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. And I really think that is what has happened, that uh, that civil government worked to protect us and protect others, and it was uh, a way in which God had given the administration of justice into human hands to be carried out. Now, how should we feel about that? And I had said, I think we should be thankful when God's justice is carried out, but someone said, well, but wait a minute, um, are, are, are we supposed to be, uh, how should we feel really about that? And um, so now, here, this comes up. This was the question. How should we feel when an evil person is punished or even put to death by the civil government, as Zarqawi in Iraq last week? And um, was it Michael, I think, who brought this verse up to me last week? Proverbs 24:17: Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and he be displeased, to turn anger from him. And the uh, Hebrew uh, verb is, do not rejoice, and um, I think, and I, and I mentioned Eric works in law enforcement for the federal government, and Monty over here is in works for the city of Phoenix and the police department, and some others of you here in the class are in uh, uh, law enforcement or government kind of things. And the question is, question is when you catch a criminal, uh, what um, what's your attitude at heart? So um, I mean, Michael works for. Did I call you Eric? Yeah okay. Do, do you, am I supposed to say what you do or not? Okay. <laughs> okay. Michael works for the FBI, and so, um, uh, but that I mean, this question of how to feel when an evildoer is apprehended is um, is uh, is a real question. And so I looked at that verse. He brought it up to me last week, and I said, I'm not sure. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. On the other hand, Proverbs 21:15, when justice is done. It is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Hmm. And here, uh, it's even harder. The, the Hebrew noun, simcha, is, the ver- is related to the verb samach. It's the same word group. Uh, here, don't rejoice when the enemy falls, but when justice is done, there's a joy to the righteous. Now, how, well, So how do you feel about the death of Zarkawi anyway? That's the question. And uh, I think... Probably what proverbs twenty four seventeen means is, do not gloat or mock or be arrogant. ha, ha ha, you got yours. See that kind of when I say that, I mean it even troubles me a little bit in my heart when I say that. You kind of feel there's a wrong attitude there, don't you? Um, which would not be loving our enemy, which Jesus says we are to do. Even to love our enemies, and I thought it was interesting in Psalm 24:17 that the <coughs> the Jewish, the Greek-speaking Jews who translated this psalm in the second century B.C. in Tewijin, they used this epikairo to rejoice, exult over, but it's mostly used of malignant joy. That is a kind of a, a gloating, mocking joy. Uh, over, some, over some wrong happening to someone, and uh, it's the same Greek word. Now that's just a translation. It's like our translation, but it's the same Greek word which uses when David's enemies were mocking and gloating over his misfortune, that kind of thing. So I think we shouldn't gloat or mock or be arrogant when someone is punished, but we should also feel, I think, a deep joy that justice is done. Am I sad that Zarqawi was killed? No, I'm not sad. There is a deep kind of joy. I'm not kind of gloating over him. I don't, I feel, I mean, there's something in me that's sad that there's a human being created in the image of God who, whose heart was so given over to evil that, um, that from all outward indications anyway, he's, he's suffering eternal punishment. And, and I'm saddened at that when that happens to any human being. Glad, but I'm glad that he was, because he put an end to the, to the evil. So it's a kind of a mixed it's a kind of a mixed emotion um, So I think we should feel a deep joy that justice is done yet also sadness for the evildoer and I, I feel that at times when I read about some criminal in the newspaper who was caught and I see his picture and I, and I'm glad he's caught and I'm angry at the evil that he was doing but I've, I feel bad for him. Because he was one time a little kid playing at home, and his mom or his mom and dad just loved him, and he was you know, and then something went wrong. And, and I know they're you know that that guy's parents are probably just really, really grieved at what is happening. so so don't rejoice when your enemy falls. there's a sadness. lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. I think this is saying, you know, when your enemy stumbles and falls, God's probably already entering and bringing judgment, and so we can have a peace about that sort of way, but not a kind of a gloating over it. It's a, it's a, it's a fine distinction. When justice is done, is the joy, and here the the Greek translate the Jewish scholars who spoke Greek did a different translation joy, gladness, cheerfulness to the righteous. So the same Hebrew root uh, they translated with two different words, giving sense that there's a different. Sense of there's a joy when justice is done, but we don't gloat or mock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What about when David cut off Goliath's head? Yeah. I'd have to look again, Pammy, yeah. at the at the. Uh, I'd have to look again at the narrative to see what it. But I did pick out a couple, and once I started on this, I could have done a whole bunch. But look at this one. Note the joy of Israel when Pharaoh and his soldiers were down, drowned in the Red Sea. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. Thank you, Lord, that Pharaoh was drowned in the sea. He was chasing us. He was going to put us to death, and you rescued us. Thank you. So there's... So there's a joy, and the joy that even caused them to burst forth in songs of praise. And you get that several times in the Bible, where you get with um, uh, the song of Miriam, or you get the song of um, Deborah and Barak in Judges 5, and you get these songs of triumph. So there's a joy, but also I just thought of another example, and that is the deep sadness of King David. David's own son, Absalom, had rebelled against him and was trying to chase him, take over the the kingdom. And, And no matter who it was going to try to take him over, he wasn't supposed to do that. And God had given the kingdom into King David's hands. And so his own son leading an army against him, trying to overthrow him. David sent out Joab. He was the, Joab was the five-star general. He was the chairman of the chiefs of staff for King David. He, he was the, the heart, battle-hardened general. And, and David, with a heavy heart, said, he sent Joab, sent Joab out to, to pursue his son Absalom. He said, be careful with the, for the young man Absalom. But in those days, you know if you're going against a battle against soldiers... you you try to to kill the leader. Because you kill the leader, then the troops are going to scatter. So I think David knew what was going to happen. When the news came back that Absalom had been defeated, that David's kingdom was going to be restored from this attack, and and, uh, and, uh, Absalom would not succeed, we read this. Behold, the Cushite, this is the messenger who ran to tell David. Behold, the Cushite came and Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? You can see his heart just anxious for his son, his son who had, who had gone bad and had done wrong. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise against you for evil be like that young man. And David knows then that Absalom is dead. <clears throat> and the king... <clears throat> The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Can you hear the sorrow in that? And yet was, was David happy that Absalom had been defeated? At one level, Yes. Because his kingdom was 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 restored and the revolution the, the rebellion against it was subdued and he knew it had to be done. so it was a sadness and then look what happens in in the next verses I didn't put them up here, chapter 19 verses one to eight then Joab comes to him and says, "David, you're weeping over your son're you're gonna, you're gonna, everybody's going to stop following you anymore." If you don't stop weeping, because the people they they put their lives on the line, they went out to you, and now you're sad. <laughs> so then David cleans up, cleans himself up, up, and comes out and sits on a seat in front of the people, and everybody's at peace. So there's a it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing, hard because we love. It's sort of you know it's kind of the related thing of you hate the sin but you love the sinner, and you, you sort of love that the justice is done, but you're sad for the sinner as well. Uh, there's a, there's a mixture, and then I thought of one other example. It isn't exactly on <clears throat> on this, but how did Abraham Lincoln feel after four years of civil war, where brother was fighting against brother? And uh, I've I've mentioned this an earlier time in the class, but it's a deeply moving section from Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, where his heart, I think. I think his heart doesn't have malice or revenge in it, just sadness and kind of an awe at God's judgment coming on the nation. This is, I'm picking up in the middle of Lincoln's second inaugural. He says, he has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Abraham his his speeches are so filled with quotations or allusions to Scripture. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. He's saying the whole civil war is judgment from God for American slavery. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in the living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Lincoln didn't know that in four weeks the war would be over and in five weeks he would be dead from an assassin's bullet. He he had no way of knowing that. He kind of sensed that the war was drawing to a close, but he didn't know how long it would go on. And yet he's it as God's judgment, not just on the south, but on the north and south, both that allowed slavery to continue so long. And so he says this amazing statement. Yet if God wills that it, that the war, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He's quoting King David, I think. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Look at this. Look at this. Amazing sense of his heart, toward the other side, with charity to all, with firmness in their, Let us strive on to finish up the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, the defeated soldier, as well as the victorious, and for his widow and his orphan, all which may achieve a cher- and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. So... Don't gloat, mock, be arrogant. But and there's a deep joy that justice is done, but there's sad it's mixed with sadness for the evildoer. Michael, what do you think? You okay with that? You wanna say anything else? Okay. Thanks. Monty, you wanna say anything? You're in law enforcement. Uh, that should be on. Push the button. Can, can we get Trent to the microphone? Just one minute. Number four. Hello, hello. Yeah. Uh, just that it's difficult sometimes, and uh, based on what you say, I just kind of look at some of the gangers and uh, look at some of the Muslims when they rejoice in the killing and dragging of folks. So the difference between the way that Christian is supposed to act, ah. difference between the way the ganger and the max at times. Oh, good. Yeah. These people dancing in the street at the 9/11 bombings—that is totally contrary to what God wants us to feel. Yeah. That was, of course, that was rejoicing over evil, really. Yeah. yeah. Good.
1: Sorry. When they went into Baghdad. Um, there were a lot of young men, Americans, that were shot up. And so the medics were running out and getting them. And this one American medic grabbed um, an Iraqi uh, on the bad side uh, and um, pulled him up over his shoulder and ran back. And this Australian um, uh, news reporter said, Hey, mate, what are you doing? Don't you know that that's um, one of the bad guys? And he said, Hey, he said, We're Americans, and that's what we do. Or don't you know that? And so there is a huge difference how Christians rejoice when it is is conquered and put to an end.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this with malice toward none, with charity toward all, there is something right about that. And you think about who were our mortal enemies in World War II, Germany and Japan. And we rebuilt them. And, and we and and we have we are friendly we, we have friendship friendly relationships with them today, except for the German socialists in the government. But that's another <laughs> <laughs> that's another question. But but with the German people as well, there's a sense of care and kindness. Okay, anything else on this? I just appreciate whoever it was that brought up this question last week. And my answer is it's a complex emotion that we already have we are guard our hearts. we go on. The assurance of God's justice enables us to forgive others freely, knowing that God will one day make everything fair and right. And we talked about that last week. And then we imitate God's justice and rights in our dealings with others. Uh, we should be rightful in our business directions and our lawsuits and sports events. And we should seek fairness in our dealings with children, students, employees. And so that's a wonderful attribute. Now, Now we go on to two other difficult attributes to talk about, but I think in the end we're going to say these are wonderful attributes of God's excellent character as well. And that is, first, God's jealousy. His jealousy. How can God be jealous? Isn't it wrong to be jealous? But God's jealousy, in a summary statement here, means that he continually seeks to protect his own honor. Right in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself a, a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, etc. Exodus 34:14. you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. And this comes to expression in Isaiah 48:11 taught why God redeems us and forgives us. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So, here we have the statement that God is jealous. Now, the question is, is jealousy a good attribute to have? In some senses, jealousy is bad. That is, whether if you start feeling resentful that somebody has something you don't have and you want to take it away from the other person, that's a wrong kind of jealousy. That's failing to love your neighbor as yourself. That's failing to want the best for your neighbor. And I don't have the verse up here, but I just noticed last night in um, the book of Acts, reflecting back on the story of Joseph and his brothers, where they took his coat of many colors, they threw him into a pit, they sold him into slavery in Egypt. It says Joseph's brothers were jealous because the father was favoring Joseph. And they shouldn't have felt that way. There was a wrong kind of jealousy. So I agree. There's some kind of jealousy that's wrong. But there's another kind of jealousy that is good, and that is being deeply committed to see honor (coughs) or or welfare of someone who deserves honor. And so uh, here's a parallel, for instance, being jealous to protect the honor and faithfulness of our marriage. A husband being jealous to protect his his marriage, our wife being jealous to protect her marriage, and that there's uh, faithfulness and purity in that marriage. I think that's a right thing. We should seek to protect that. Another example is wanting people to speak truthfully about you. Um, how do you feel when someone lies about you? You hear that somebody's spreading a rumor about you, <clears throat> and it's false, Wendy. <laughs> you don't like it, right? what do you do? you you, you go to the person and say, "Wait a minute! I heard you say something that I did something, that I stole something, or that I lied about something, or that I was dishonest, and or that I was mean to something." And you you try to track it down and set it right. We don't like it when people lie about us. And so there's this is this is good. This is not a selfish attitude to want people to speak truthfully about us. It's a God given to imitate His jealousy, rightful honor in the universe. So when people start saying Oh, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the, the sea and all that is in them, you know what he's like? He's like this golden calf. In fact, that's what he looks like. And all of a sudden, God is saying, Aaron and the people are teaching? Are you teaching the people of Israel that I'm like a, a calf? What does that say about God's intelligence? I mean, see, they're trying to say a calf, it's a symbol of fertility and health and nourishment and things in the ancient world. And, but look at all the bad things they're saying. What does that say about God's ability to love other people? How good is a calf at interpersonal relationship or small group discussion? How about God's ability to answer prayer? How about his power? A calf is weak compared to the God who sustains the universe. How about God's creativity? How do calves do in artistic ability? I mean, you start thinking about how God's like this half, how that's lying about God. And he feels about that a million times more troubled than you do when people lie about you because he's infinitely worthy of honor. And so right there where it says, don't make a, a carved image or a graven image, it's saying, for I, the Lord, your God, my am a jealous God. He doesn't want to be lied about. He doesn't want to be misrepresented. He wants to be honored rightly. Sandy?
2: Go ahead. Translation, um, the Exodus 34:14 and New Living Translation, which is dynamic, is it, I, yeah, I take it as yeah, a commentary. Yeah, right. Is um, refers to God inter, uh, translates this is a jealous God, a God who is passionate about His people, and so I think your analogy to marriage is is a really good one. That that part of God's jealousy, perhaps, is is out of his love for us, which reminds me of what your friend John Piper talked about when he says we are most satisfied when God is most glorified so that God, because of who he is and because of his perfect character, knows that it's when he is accurately represented, um, that is what's v- the very best for us. Okay. When God is given honor and we see that and we glorify him, God desires that because he knows that that's what's best for him. Okay. And so because of who he is, his jealousy is, is a good thing, not a bad thing.
0: Okay. Um, I guess my response to that is yes, that's really helpful insight, God who is jealous for his people or He's zealous for passionate for his people. But I want to say yes, but there's more than that. He's He's passionate even more than he's passionate for his people. He's passionate for his own honor. That he be honored because he is worthy of honor. And uh, I think that's at the heart of jealousy. So it's, it's a yes and there's this as well. Okay. So God wants people to think rightly about him. He wants people to give him the worship that he deserves. Now, when I say that, something's going on in your heart. Either you're happy about that, or you're not. <laughs> God wants people to give him the worship that he deserves, and we've got to do a little shift in our thinking here, because on a human level, we don't like it when people take praise and honor for themselves and want everybody to clap for them and honor them and everything. But the reason is. I think that deep, 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 deep down, we realize that they don't deserve that because who made them the way they are? God deserves it. But when God takes honor for himself, he's not robbing it from anybody else. So, so he wants us to think rightly about him and to give him the worship that he deserves. He's not robbing honor from anybody else who deserves it more. And so it is right for God to desire our praise and for God to, to preserve his honor because he alone is infinitely worthy of praise. And this is what we get in the song in Revelation 4, Revelation 4:11, 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He, came, he created everything, so he's worthy to receive glory from it and honor from it and for all the strength and power of the nations to be devoted to him and be given to his service. I think when we realize this, it will deepen our joy in worship, because worship of God is what ought to happen. It's deeply, profoundly right. What, and when we are in a time of extended worship with other believers, there's something in us that says, yes, this is what should be. This is what is right in the universe. Does it trouble us that God delights in our praise of him? It might if we try to make God like a human being who shouldn't rob God of praise. But if God is God and deserves it all, then it shouldn't trouble us. It should feel really good to our hearts. And I ask this question. You look back over your life, You're thankful. You've seen answers to prayer. You've seen forgiveness of sin. You know that Christ has died and paid the penalty for your sin. There's no condemnation. You have access before God's throne in prayer. You have fellowship with him. And you know that your eternal destiny is to go and live with him forever. And you are thankful. And you start saying, thank you, God. I praise you, Lord. I worship you, Lord. I glorify you. I am thankful to you. What if God said, no, you can't do that. I don't want you to praise me. I forbid it. Well, something in my heart's going to say, I have to. I am so thankful. God, I have to praise you. I it's bursting inside me. I am so thankful to you. I am so delighted. I, I delight in you so much. I'm so overcome with awe at your excellence. I want to say glory to you, God. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. Don't let me say this. I, I'll burst. And it's, it, it, it's wrong. Do you not let me praise you. Wouldn't you feel that way? Are you following with me? If God didn't want us to praise him, I think we would say something's not right in the universe. The universe should praise him and should glorify him. So here's the application. Number one, do we like the fact that God is jealous for his own honor? Do you like it? Do you like it? It, does it seem right to you? Because he is. And so if, if you don't like it, something it's not anything wrong with him. It's something wrong in your heart. What's your name? I keep reading. Glenn.
3: Um I have a question. Um, one of the God's other attributes is God is love. Yep. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says love is patient, love yep. is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, and it does not seek his own. Can you elaborate on that?
0: sure. I mean, the general answer, Glenn, is that all of God's attributes modify all of God's other attributes. So his jealousy is a righteous jealousy, a truthful jealousy, an eternal jealousy, an omnipotent jealousy, uh, a, a, a wise jealousy, and it's a loving jealousy. But what is... I don't know what it means. Does not seek its own. Uh, maybe that's human love, and and divine love is different. Maybe it's a wrongful seeking of your own benefit, as you know, to uh, at the expense of others. I'll have to spend. I have to go look at the Greek text of First Corinthians thirteen later, uh, and see if I can come back next week with uh, or sometime. Anybody help me here? John? We sit there and
3: use the word jealous. And jealous kicks in our mind. We don't like yep. that word. Yep. And I think God, God's really saying that you tell the truth about it.
0: Okay. I am agreeing with you. God's saying, I want you to tell the truth about me. And that helps us understand. But I can't lose the word jealous because it's so much there in the Bible. And so... I mean people have tried substituting zealous. God is, zealous. but that doesn't mean the same thing. So jealous means I think there's a right kind of jealousy and a wrong kind of jealousy and God is jealous for his honor. That's a right kind of jealousy and it, but I agree He seeks people to tell the truth about him and to honor him in our hearts. What's your name? Sherry yeah I, I know I
2: think if He weren't if you were not jealous, it seems to me it would diminish. God's own integrity by allowing us to flounder in our misdirection.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, if he weren't jealous, okay, it it wouldn't wouldn't be exactly right. Okay, go ahead. Well,
1: uh, thanks. In my opinion, God's jealousy is not for His own sake; it's for our sake, and that's the difference I think. And we tend to jealousy. The comment you made earlier. Well, do we feel right in our heart about that? That, yeah. well, because you don't like it when somebody wants all the praise for themselves. Yep.
3: It's not for him.
1: It's for our sake, and I think that has to be directed back to us. That's my opinion.
0: Okay, and I'm gonna. I'll tell you what. I'm gonna. I think it's for his sake. I do. I mean, because, because. See. It's it's uh talking about forgiving our sins. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be proclaimed? My glory I will not give to another. So, I mean, in a human level, it's right for us to seek the good of others. That's to to love others, And God does seek our good as well. That's true. But why? I think ultimately the highest good in the universe is to give God glory. And that isn't just for the sake of doing human beings good. It's because God deserves glory. Yeah, so it's good for us. It's good, but I feel good is that I think he deserves it. I'm just gonna kind of move around here a couple more way in the back, and then I'll, and then I'll come back over the other side. Um, just going back to what you said about um, kind of God's level of jealousy, and we as humans, because also in James 1:20 talks about um, anger. It says um, being angry. Angry does not bring about the will that God wants us to have, and yeah. yet we look in the Bible and, and God. There's, there's time and time again we see God being angry in His righteous anger. Yeah. And I
3: think there's a big difference between our jealousy and us viewing God as being jealous because okay. those are two different things. Okay, right? so
0: here's the thing. On all these attributes, there's similarity and difference with us, and uh, and so with jealousy, there is a similarity and difference. There's a faint reflection of us wanting people to tell the truth about us. Okay. But for God, it's He does want all honor and glory. But on the other hand, if you if you win the golf tournament, you want to get the prize. See, or, or if you get an A, in the, if you earn an A in the class, you want to get an A. We want to have rightful uh, recognition. Yeah. I think you can have jealousy with love. I think if you can have jealousy in a loving way, then it's the right thing. If you have jealousy for so that's something that is right,
3: if, if love is, is your is your is yeah. your main goal
0: yeah.
3: out of that jealousy, but none of us have been trained to have that in yeah. our lives, so it, it's a that's why the word doesn't sound right.
0: Yeah, I know it's a, it's a question. I mean, in English, we've got this word that has a negative part to it, but there is some posi- maybe there'd be a better word in English, but but nobody's found it yet. So my
3: my wife is is right to be jealous that I go fishing too often, because my kids lose out, she yeah. loses yeah. out. Yeah. that's a righteous jealousy So,
0: see it's a jealousy for what is right then that's good okay okay anything else I've got a bunch of hands over here okay uh, Pammy.
1: being that it is Father's Day um, I had a wonderful earthly father um, who came to know the Lord the last 16 years of his but my father not anything went in our there were no restraints no protection no anything at all I love the fact that my heavenly Father is a jealous God okay. and I love the fact that there that he sets limitations and that um, and there's expectations in a loving way I
0: Adore yeah. that because fact. Jealousy is combined with righteousness. And justice.
1: It, it really is, and the self love. What out of First Corinthians thirteen um, does not seek his own? Um, on that, I just uh, the I loved what you said. It all intertwines together God's attributes, because the Lord would never do it as an ego trip. He doesn't have an ego, and it is for our benefit I believe. I mean, I know you said that you believe jealousy is for God's benefit, yeah, both, but I, I think it is so much for ours because I want you to know when I think about God being a jealous God, I want to do what's right because I don't want to disappoint. Yep. And the fact that he can be pointed I get encouragement from that because my father, my earthly father was so, eh, you come in at two, you do this, you do that, It's a, no no problem. It, yeah. It's a right of ownership. I feel owned by the Lord, and that's exciting
0: to me. Okay, good. good. One more, Sandy, and then I'm going to go on to – oh, and I've got Diane. All right, two more. Oh, three more. Well, look, I'm not going to get to God's wrath here. I'm not going to get done. Um, you know what? Well – you haven't said anything for a long time, so, no, I so I, Mary. I just to say that has way, to go closer that, to you.
2: That I wanted to say that God knows our needs, and yeah. we
0: have a need to praise Him. We have a need to praise Him. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think we do. Okay, Diane. Then Sandy. Then we're done.
3: Okay, maybe it'll help. I know it's a complex passage, but James four five, yes, and that. Um, or do you suppose it is for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dull and gives more grace? Therefore, it says, poses the proud, gives more grace to the humble. And I notice in the ESV, the spirit is not capitalized there, so it must not be the Holy Spirit. So
0: it could go either way. Probably it could go either says, way. Or spirit anyway, the point
3: is he's put something in us and yeah. he's guarding us. So yes. to it just supports your point that this jealousy is for us. It's it's
0: for us, but ultimately it's for God.
3: Well, of course, but it gets there. But the idea is he's trying to win us back.
0: Yes, okay, good. Okay. Good sentence? Last comment on the 1st
2: Corinthians passage, um, where it's translated, God doesn't seek his own. What strikes me is he doesn't have to. He's the only one in the universe who doesn't have to seek anything that to make it his own, because it is all his, and all honor and glory is due to him. And this idea of his jealousy and his love for us, that's essentially what I was trying to say before, that we are more satisfied when he is most glorified. Primarily it is for his glory, but it is also a reflection of knowing what's good for
0: us. Okay, and then... I did find I did look at the Greek text of uh, 1 Corinthians 13:5. Uh, does not seek his own. I'm not going to get anything more out of the words. They're common words. they is to seek, the things belonging to himself. Uh, I think it means isn't selfish, and uh, that's consistent with God. Uh, selfishness is not wanting to love others, and um, that's not that's not what God is. He's love. So let's go on. Okay. What do we do about this? Uh, do we like the fact that God is jealous for his honor? I think that something really good is going to happen in our hearts spiritually if we come to the point where we can delight in the fact that it's, pure, that it's pure and holy, that God seeks his own honor. He seeks his praise. He delights in our praise. I think there's something very healthy in our hearts because it settles in our hearts that he is God and we are not, that he is worthy of praise. Ultimately, he is worthy of all praise and this is spiritually really healthy for us and it frees us up to freely worship him and that's a wonderful it's just at the heart of worship so number one number 2 do you reflect God's jealousy for his honor for his own honor instinctively when you hear him dishonored in conversation or on TV uh, when we were, oh, I was in California last week, I went down to the exercise room in the hotel, and there were a couple other guys in there on the treadmill, and they had a TV station on, and this guy on the TV channel, and I couldn't change it because the other people had it on, and, and, uh, and this guy was just really dishonoring God, and my heart was just grieved about that. Uh, it was just kind of, it was meant to be a humor routine, but it was really, it was really dishonoring the Lord. Do we feel that way instinctively? I think we should. I think probably our, our hearts can be desensitized to that and hardened to that if, when our culture c- has so much of it going on. But when God's name is misused, when he's dishonored, when he's not spoken truthfully about. And I started to think about this. I think when God looks at our society or looks at the world, I think God is jealous. he be honored in our churches. He is jealous that he be honored in our committee meetings. He is jealous that He be honored in our business transactions, just when we go into the store and buy things, or you work in a commercial situation, you're selling things. God is jealous that He be honored and His principles be followed in husband wife relationships. Yes, in yours. Yes, in your neighbor's, but all around the world. God is jealous that He be honored in all of those. He is jealous that He be honored in everything that goes out over the television. And He's not. He's jealous that he'd be honored in everything that's shown in every movie theater, and he's not. He's jealous. God is jealous that he'd be honored in truthfulness in what is put in the newspapers. He's jealous that he'd be honored in emails. He's jealous that he'd be honored in everything that appears on every computer screen everywhere in the world. He's jealous that he'd be honored in our conversations. He's jealous that he'd be honored in our attitude of heart throughout the day throughout every day. God's jealousy is really important, and to just keep a of that in our minds. I think that's really important. Third, as with other attributes, I'm asking how does God want us to imitate this attribute of jealousy? Have you done enough to correct untruthful things said about you? I think there can be a mistake that Christians made make, when they become too wimpy about falsehoods that are spoken about them and don't get them corrected. Uh, And if you look at the life of Jesus, every time the Pharisees or the Sadducees said, oh, you cast out demons by the prince of demons, or said something else wrong about him, he corrected it immediately. Except at the end of his life when he was on trial and he didn't answer, but he knew that was a special situation where he's going to be condemned uh, for our sins. But every place else he answered immediately. And Paul, when he was falsely accused, uh, he wanted to come in Philippi and the, the magistrates bring him out publicly when he put in jail, he was put in jail falsely. He wanted his reputation to be straightened out. And so have you done any untruthful things said about you? I don't think that's wrong to do that. I think it's right to do that. It, and sometimes, of course, you try and you can't. Then you leave it in God's hands. But other times I think you need to answer and answer quickly and trace down the falsehood that's being said. Um, I don't think that's wrong. Okay, God's wrath. We just have uh, seven minutes left. Let's see if we can do this. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. God says, Behold, this is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and may consume them. Deuteronomy 9, remember, do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath. Even at Horeb or Mount Sinai, you provoke the Lord to wrath. God has wrath against evil. If God loves all that is right and good, it should not be surprising that he would hate everything opposed to his moral character. There would be something very wrong with a God who did not hate evil and sin. Who just said, Oh fine, to every horrible evil deed that went on in the universe. Oh, that's fine. Oh, that's Pammy, I mean, it's what you were concerned about with your dad, not setting rules in the household. And even children have a sense, this we need rule, we need enforcement of rules. And so if God did just said, Oh, that's fine to everything in the universe, again it would be really troubling to us. Because we would say there's going to be no justice done. And what would heaven be like if God didn't punish and exclude sin? It would be just like this world. We don't want that. Therefore, the wrath of God is a good and necessary attribute. It's the other side of his love for the excellence of his character. God's wrath, therefore, must be directed against all sinful human beings. And it's only removed from us by Christ bearing God's wrath in our place. God didn't just say, oh, I'll just forgive people who happen to believe in Jesus. Jesus had to pay a price, the penalty of wrath against sin. That was necessary. Whoever does not believe Uh, Obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And Romans 18 begins this long description of sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So people who have, but, 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 reminder, people who have believed in Christ have no need to fear coming under God's wrath. We were, by nature, children of wrath, but that's the past, Paul says to the Ephesians. and 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. We're not going to face God's wrath in the future, and we should be tremendously thankful for that. In this age, we should also be thankful for God's patience, because though there is evil in the world, and God's wrath could rightfully be poured out on judgment even today on the world, God is patient And his wrath doesn't come on the world at once. He is slow to anger. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It doesn't come on the world at once, but God's wrath will come. So is there application? I mean, just as we talked about justice and righteousness for some time and how that works out in our hearts, and we talked about God's jealousy, we could go on talking about God's wrath. And it is amazing how often the Bible mentions the wrath of God. He does not take sin lightly. He takes it very seriously. Application of God's wrath, we should thank and praise God for his just wrath against sin, yet also for his mercy and patience in this age. And number two, I think by implication to our lives as Christians, though we should never fear God's wrath to do us harm, to punish us, we should still fear displeasing God. And we should fear coming under fatherly discipline. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Or Psalm 111, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, to fear a displeasing God. All who practice it have a good understanding. So I, I do live in fear of God's displeasure, doing something that would grieve him, not that he would ever send me to hell or, or punish me, to do me harm forever, but he will discipline me for my good when I stray outside of his will. And Then do we imitate God's wrath, just as we imitate other kinds of attributes of God? Yes, I think there is a faint reflection of this. There is a righteous anger against sin and evil that is appropriate to us as human beings and that is not inconsistent with love for our neighbor. There were times when our kids were growing up when I became angry at one child doing something to harm another child. And you have to be really careful because there's an unrighteous anger that can come in, but when you see a a real wrong being done, there's anger. Um, That is, that that should not be in the universe. And so, um, and again coming back to law enforcement, I imagine that people who work, those of you who work in law enforcement, there's anger when you see somebody harming another person. And it's has And so Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Oh, look at this. Jesus wants, he's going to heal this man with a withered hand. But it's the Sabbath. And so he looks around uh, at these uh, Jewish leaders who are opposed to him, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. They didn't love that man. They didn't care for him. They were silent. And he looked around with them at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was healed. So Jesus had some anger against the evil that was in people's hearts that so they didn't even love, this man with the withered hand. That's God's wrath. Carol, one one question is going to go to Carol and then then we're going to be done. I just wonder
3: if we disagree with us that our empathy and our lack of action to get out and vote, to speak out to our legislators, to actually... Run for office, to you know. The reason we have so many immoral actions is because us as Christians have been some. Some. sitting back and doing nothing.
0: Yeah, some, some, some,
3: okay. right.
0: Yeah, some. And so, is, is there? I a would
3: just think he'd be angry with mm, us for not
0: for passivity in the face of th- evil. Yes. You know, and there's a temptation in this age just to just to let let just. Close your door and let the world go on, and and uh, and that really isn't acting with love toward others. When we have opportunity to do good, mm-hmm. and question is, what does God call us each to individually in our lives? Okay. Oh, well. Now look, I did this song once before. It just seemed to be inappropriate to talking about God's jealousy and wrath. It's a song with four verses. Talking about God coming in judgment, but also coming as king to right all wrong in the earth. So the tune is Eternal Father Strong to Save, but it's Oh quickly come, dread judge of all, for awful though thine advent be, but then I mean you say, Whoa, do I want to sing that? But but wait a minute, because what is happening is the song goes on to say, God's going to make everything right. He's going to settle all accounts. It's going to be fair. Our hearts are going to be at peace. The world is going to be at peace. And he's going to come and reign and pain and sorrow and death and suffering and dying are going to be gone. So in that way, it's a good song. So let's try it, okay? I think if we think about the evil in the world that so grieves our heart and so harms others, that this would be a song that we could sing then as a prayer.